Good afternoon, everyone. Great to have you here in the Freemasons Lodge. Ghana Yatanga Yuandi. I honour the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains. I honour their elders, past, present, and emerging, and uh, pay respects to deep connection uh, uh, with the land. It is on Ghana land, of course, that the Art Gallery of South Australia and all parts of the Adelaide Biennial 2020 Monster Theatres inhabits. So, welcome to our first keynote. Uh, the first thing I want to do is, um, is really genuinely thank, um, with enormous gratitude, the Naomi Milgram Foundation. And great to see Naomi um, in the gallery today. And it is through her foundation and her vision that the whole keynote series in the arena, as conceived by Lee Robb, has been uh, made possible. So uh, as with all aspects of the biennial, we, we need support for everything. So I really want to thank the Naomi Milgram Foundation for the extraordinary work uh, that she does across the entire country. So, of course, you've already been inculcated. The monster has been released, there is no doubt. <laughs> so, finally, it's just so wonderful to share this, these extraordinary 24 solo projects with you, 24 solo projects that have are woven together in a, in a, in a spectacular uh, narrative, a very subtle narrative uh, brought together through uh, the extraordinary vision and... Uh, acuity of Lee Robb. Um, really, she's um, a, a curator who has such curiosity and such openness about artistic practice. And uh, one of the things I really love about this biennial is, is her embrace of artists like Pierre Mukiba, you know, just turned 24, and then um, three artists in their 70s, you know, who, who else would actually deal with uh, and present new work by both Mike Parr and Stellark in one show. It's like, wow, this girl knows no bounds. So, um, so I now have the great honor of um, introducing Larissa Horth on her keynote, our first keynote for Monster Theatres um, in the arena. And her title is Eco Grief, Creative Practice and Hope in which she'll reflect on eco-grief and the power of creative practice and ethnography to transform how we live in the world. Distinguished Professor Larissa Horth is a socially engaged artist and digital ethnographer. Horth has two decades experience working in interdisciplinary, collaborative and playful and socially motivated um, digital media um, and exploring intergenerational relationships with cross-cultural context. Horth has explored the socio-cultural dimensions of mobile media in many contexts such as Japan, South Korea, China and Australia. Horth has published over 100 publications on these topics. Um, recent publications include Haunting Hands, Understanding Social Media, Creative Practice Ethnographies, and Ambient. One of the other things uh, which Larissa may not mention during um, her talk is that she has just initiated an extraordinary residency program um, up in the Adelaide Hills. Many of you may know her mother, uh, Noella Horth, an artist and printmaker, and her house has now become uh, a, an artist residency. And Larissa, out of the blue, gave me a call, and we had this amazing conversation. Well, who is this woman? And um, and she, it's called Clarendon Creative. And then in conversation with Lee Robb, uh, Megan Cope has been the very first inaugural. Uh, residents and artists in residence and so for I know for Megan it's been incredible for her to be in that beautiful space up in the Adelaide Hills and then descending and the you know the intensity of, of Megan's work and to have this distance and this um, this spatial uh, and this this um, connection and also this environmental context has been really wonderful and I really want to thank Marissa personally uh, for offering that to Megan. So, over to Larissa. Mind the top step, that's my tip. <laughs> Nothing like a dexterity test to start the talk with. It's just a great, awesome. Um, I also would like to, um, you might notice there's some cards on your chairs. Um, this is for you to be active after the talk. So. Um, 
maybe the teacher in me is like, okay, so listen to what I have to say and then I would like your responses. And I often use um, tools like this because it helps for different types of um, people to engage with material. Some people don't feel confident asking questions at the end, but then they can put it on the cards and then we can gather those questions. Um, so firstly to start, I would also like to acknowledge that the Garana people of the traditional, as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and I recognise their importance of ongoing rituals, cultural and heritage beliefs. I pay my respect to their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. The eco-grief we are experiencing today is only a tiny fraction of the centuries of grief experienced by First People of this nation under colonialism. And I recognise that they have inhabited these lands for 120,000 years in ways that were attuned to human and more than human experiences of the land. Indeed, I think a key lesson learned from the climate change disaster as the new norm slash phenomena is that we do need to hear and listen and learn from our Indigenous elders. I pay respect to them and I feel gratitude for their knowledge and understanding of the complexity of multi-species ways of being. I also want to thank the fantastic team of the Art Gallery of South Australia and particularly the extraordinary talents of Lee Robb for the invitation. Monster Theatre and all the amazing artists involved really does epitomise the geists of our times. It's a real honour to be here for such an important event. I'd also like to highlight that pretty much all of my work is collaborative, so when I use the I, I'm actually meaning the we, and I'm in gratitude for my, to my colleagues for their constant source of inspiration. I also want to acknowledge that some of the material that I'll be showing might be difficult and might be triggering. In this talk, I want to, you to sit with these ideas about grief across different contexts, ecological, cultural and technological. I hope that we can make this a safe space to reflect on our understandings of grief and how this, in turn, could be used as a call to action for social change. And here I'm trying to embody what the feminist philosopher Donna Haraway notes as staying with the trouble in order to understand and move forward productively. <clears throat> 2020, what a sombre, melancholic, apocalyptic beginning. The year that new unimaginable types of disasters became the norm. Where catastrophic images we had only seen in sci-fi films became our reality. Where the algorithms filled our smartphones with what philosopher Rosie Baradotti recently called the pornography of grief in our social imaginary. Where images of grief and loss bombarded our social feed media feeds while the politics of climate change skepticism played out to ScoMo Hawaiian themes. Where images of dead kangaroos, koalas with burn victim bandages and unimaginable fires reigned. One billion animals lost their lives. Where we learned what promocomus clouds look, feel and smell like, we felt the heavy rusty rains from the burnt mallies as it stained our surroundings. Where social media feeds barraged us relentlessly with images of death, destruction and grief, occasionally interrupted by a blissful holiday on the beach. Where the monsters coincided in the theatre of everyday life. Where eco-grief ate away at our strength and sense of hope. For many of us, um, many of us have known people affected by the fires, and all of us have been, been involved indirectly. During the crisis, mobile phones became a site for effect and witnessing. For those in affected areas, networks went down and people turned to older media like radio and landlines. 
The division between the urban and the rural converged as atmospheres of apocalyptic smoke clouds dominated our vision and suffocated our sense of smell. According to Neville Ellis and Ashley Consolo, ecological grief is the effective dimension of witnessing and the anxiety associated with the future of anticipated loss. It comes from Western discourses around emergent environmentalism that led to the green movements such as the Lake Save Lake Pettifund in 1970, one year before the establishment of Greenpeace in 1971. For Ellis and Consola, eco-grief is, quote, the grief felt in relation to experienced and anticipated ecological losses, including the loss of species, ecosystems, meaningful landscapes due, due to acute and chronic environmental change. As a phenomenon, it is linked to our relationship between images of the environment in crisis and its psychological effect on our sense of belonging and well-being. Eco-grief highlights the limits of Western frameworks in understanding how we deal with the reality of what has been called the Anthropocene. That is, the comparatively short geological age in which humans have left a palpable impact on the environment. Indeed, it highlights that we need to listen deeply to other cultures, which have placed the more than humans or animals understanding as core to their rituals in and around place, such as our First, peoples, First Nations people. As we know, the traditional owners of the land have been practicing sustainable environmental stewardship for 120,000 years. Yet they suffer disproportionately as eco-practices, such as indigenous burning rituals, are ignored, invalidated, or worse, cherry-picked for their value during crisis tipping points. We need eco-grief conversations to connect the lessons that can be learned from our indigenous elders. Parks Victoria and other organisations are slowly learning, have slowly adopting these rituals um, a few years ago through their ecological protection policies. But this is still not enough. And in this journey, we need to see core curriculum change in Australia to include things like Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu and who spoke yesterday, Claire Coleman's Terranalis. Eco-grief involves a form of effective witnessing. Greek anthropologist Penelope Papalist talks about the rise of effective witnessing through media such as smartphones. Once upon a time in Western cultures, a boundary was demarked between mourners and the witnesses. Rituals like funerals sought to compartmentalize grief. And yet the nature of grief is a flood of emotional waves that are far from controllable and containable. Grief lives with us, accompanies us, and reminds us of humility and gratitude. Mobile phones are vehicles for and of intimacy. Through them, we shape images, we, we share images of such raw emotional intensity, blurring temporal and spatial boundaries, collapsing the line between the mourner and the witness. Internet scholars such as Dana, Boyd, and Melissa Gregg have called this context collapse, a breakdown between public and private, work and life, here and there. Using the example of the Alan Curdy image in which a drowned young boy came to encapsulate the grief of the Syrian refugee crisis, Papalist argues that the role of effect in witnessing today means that we are all impacted in ways that require us to re-examine grief as part of everyday life. Papalist, drawing on the post-structuralist feminist Judith Butler, argues that these moments of grief illustrate the inequality of bodies, that some bodies matter more than other bodies. This is not what Barodotti calls the pornography of grief that sells newspapers. Instead, effective witnessing demonstrates that grief is something that can't be compartmentalized. Mobile media brings grief and de death literally and metaphorically into our hands. It reminds us that death isn't the opposite to life. 
rather through the rituals of connection with grief and death in quotidian ways we can make sense of the world our social media feeds in our hands weave messages of loss and love almost seamlessly there are many words for this practice in different cultures and disciplines psychologists call this process continuing bonds that is the way that cultures and people make sense of this relationship with loved ones when they have passed away. We might continue to send text to a deceased loved one's phone. We might carry their phone with us. We might be convinced they continue to inhabit our lives through social media from the grave. There are no wrong or right processes. So today I want to talk about the complexity of grief. And it's not something that can be sensationalized as we might have seen in news footage. It needs to be contextualized and it needs to be understood. Um, Rosie Baradotti recently gave a talk about the media and climate change and she called it an epistemological acceleration of panic-stricken white discourse. Wow, what a mouthful. <laughs> um, but that's not the angle that I'm taking here. Rather, I want to discuss how everyday media is inscribing particular affordances of effective witnessing that are shaping our experiences of grief and eco-grief. I want to grapple with some of the ongoing and uneven textures of grief across different cultural and individual beliefs, and the ways in which we might turn these moments of disaster and grief into pathways for productive hope and affirmation. That's you, okay? You're going to be doing that. No pressure, no pressure. So in order to do so, I want to turn to another example of eco-grief, which was experienced nearly a decade ago. Um, and a lot of us have, have been looking at Japan recently because they've closed their schools because of the coronavirus. Um, they're also possibly in the next couple of weeks going to work out whether the Olympics are going ahead because of the whole virus. Um, and for those that are reading about what's happening with Fukushima, you know, they started putting water when the disaster happened, and those, those um, uh, containers are now full. Okay, so we're kind of at a point where this conversation needs to be had. So I want to kind of use the example of learning from the Fukushima earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear re reactor disaster in March 2011, known as 311. Especially I want to draw your attention to the role of creativity and ethnography to put lived experience and practice at the centre of a way for moving forward in terms of hopeful futures. So this collaborative work by Don't Follow the Wind, which involved artists such as Ai Weiwei and Chimpong, conducted, they conducted creative interventions in and around the contaminated site. Setting up the exhibition in an old abandoned farm, Don't Follow the Wind is an exhibition that people can experience once the site is safe again. So Don't Follow the Wind sought to generate public discussion about the pros and cons of nuclear energy as a solution, for global, as a solution to global warming. However, the Guardian's Jonathan Jones accused the artist of feasting once more on the apocalyptic image of nuclear disaster. I then wanted to turn to the power of creative practice and how it can transform our methods and techniques and modes of translation across cultures and languages, um, disciplines and ideologies. My colleagues and I argue that art and ethnography has had a long entangled history and that, it, that it's really important to coalesce these histories to give us an alternative, um, alternative models for community engagement, inspiring new insights through listening, cultural understanding and translation. Here I'm not kind of forwarding a traditional notion of, of ethnography as the writing up of a field within anthropology and sociological kind of frameworks. So there's no safari suits here. By the way, that was the only joke in my talk, so you missed that one. Okay, all right. Um, in the traditional sense of writing up the field, ethnography involves processes such as thick reading, which draws our attention to the unfamiliar, the tacit, and invisible dimensions of culture through its action in practice. Action in practice means that no field or methods are left untouched. 
Ethnography has, with its emphasis on reflexivity, power, and practice-centered approaches, a long history in activism and embodied forms of social change. The synthesis and learnings between socially engaged art and ethnography allow for us um, to innovate on these techniques and modes for collaboration, particularly around the idea of impact. Can I just get a hand sense of how many people here are academics in the room? Okay, the small group sit together, okay. <laughs> Okay, this one is for you, okay? <laughs> this little block, everyone, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so there's been a recent, in Australia, there's been a recent framework called the um, Australian Research Council Engagement and Impact Evaluation. And it's pretty much the rollout of what they did in the UK 15 years ago, which was called REF, which is the Research Evaluation Frameworks, lots of acronyms here. Um, and it was about thinking how we might measure impact. Now, while this is an academic problem, many institutions are having to, for their funders, justify how they measure impact. You know, what is, and what does impact feel like? And even the metaphor of impact is a pretty horrible one to discuss how we think about dynamic and ongoing relationships. But one of the really interesting things about this um, framework has been the role of art and alternative ways of um, expression actually being the kind of case studies that did the best in, in this framework. So in a sense, now you've got social scientists, et cetera, who are actually looking to artists um, you know, for their kind of deep and ongoing cultural and social engagement um, and for methods of engaging audiences in different ways. So I think this is a really interesting turn in terms of the value of artists um, within um, cultural practice. And this speaks more broadly to the fact that now we're needing even more innovative interdisciplinary models for understanding lived experience, and particularly the nuances of cultural practice and the power of storytelling to transform the way that we're seeing things and being in the world. And particularly in an age of datafication, which is basically the generating of information about people using their devices, and um, it's really interesting how many people don't really know how much the phone is tracking you, except it's like you talk about something and then the phone just gives you a suggestion. You're like, oh, wow, that was listening. Um, we need to kind of counter these dark, dark kind of hyperbole stories about data valence um, with the actual stories on the ground, the stories of creativity, agency, and hope. We need these stories to be embedded in new ethical ways of being in the world. So eco-grief makes it clear that climate change is not elsewhere or a mere scientific process. It brings home a sense of personal loss when the natural world, the one we associate with home, with cultural meaning, with belonging and storytelling, changes violently before our eyes. For Ellis and Consolo, Ecological grief also illustrates the ways in which our more than humans are integral to our mental well-being, our communities, our cultures, and our ability to thrive in a human-dominated world. And as we settle into a life of crisis mode, as the, quote, new normal, we need to search for new productive and caring ways to be in the world and with each other. So how can we navigate through eco-grief and its effective witnessing to find hopeful paths to move forward? In this section, I want to reflect upon the performative and cartographic or mapping dimensions of media and how they are amplified in situations of trauma and disaster. And also the role of creativity and ethnography to create cultural awareness and social change. Here I'm gonna reflect on two bodies of collaborative research. Firstly, an Australian Research Council uh, linkage, which was called Spatial Dialogues, in which we explored with artists the role of artists to challenge the kind of normative climate change narratives which were being politicized. Um, the funny thing was with that grant, um, we weren't actually getting that much traction on the ground. And then Tony Abbott,
Stewart, who was just about to be voted in, he picked it out of a list of grants that were already funded. And he said, this is exactly what I wouldn't fund. It has two things I don't believe in, climate change and art. Um, and what he did was actually, yeah, he actually gave us a lot of um, um, exposure. So thank you, I suppose. I need to thank Tony for his criticism. When we were doing the book, we thought we'd choose the most apocalyptic image that, you know, like was kind of like would freak people out. But you kind of look at this image now and it actually looks like just one of the new normal images of the sandstone post-fires. And I secondly want to draw on some research that I've done with City of New York University psychologist Katie Kumsky, um, who we've explored the way that mobile media is used to manage grief and mourning and how this differs across different cultures. So we interviewed people in the US, Australia, Japan and South Korea about their different experiences and perceptions and practices of grief. As Katie and I discovered, mobile media played an important role in contextualizing grief and mourning as intimate experiences of kingship that infiltrate our everyday lives. It literally puts grief in our hands, reminding us that death and life are intrinsically interwoven. So much of the interdisciplinary work around cultural notions of grief and the digital have looked to the role of mobile media as a way of making sense of place and belonging. We often use mobiles to locate us. Well, sometimes Google Maps works. But importantly, we use it to locate ourselves emotionally and symbolically. It is a repository for and of intimacy. Through these multiple tracings of place, they also democratize maps and are part of what human geography calls a performative cartography. That is, the speculative fictions of maps and map making and how, we, and how that influences our ways of inhabiting the world. So studying the mobile phone over two decades has highlighted that it's actually less of a technology. If you ask someone about their mobile phone, you're not actually talking to them about technology. You're talking to them about their perceptions of relationships, the way they manage relationships, and their practices of intimacy. In my ethnographic fieldwork, mobile media are constantly used as a tool for understanding place through intimacy. That is the way that we co-curate stories, experiences, and ways of being in the world across material, digital, and physical cartographies. In Japan, for example, there's a social um, media called LINE, um, and it has allowed new ways to express beyond cultural restraints. Grandparents and grandchildren use this very often to care at a distance, sending paralinguistics, you know, like emojis, smiley faces, and stamps. Sometimes the grandparents get the emojis kind of wrong, but that ends up being even more fun for discussion. One young, young participant actually marveled at the role mobiles play in expressing tacit emotions that they hadn't been able to previously express in Japanese culture. So much so that she remarked, I don't know how my parents got together without the mobile phone. So take, for example, this K-Time mobile littered with Hello Kitties from 2000. For the owner, Yoko, each Hello Kitty is a memento of a place that she has been with a special person. Here the Katai operates like a charm bracelet, a metaphoric caravan of special memories. Yoko's Katai not only highlights how the mobile is about placemaking and ways of being and moving in the world, but also illustrates that the digital is embedded in the material. The digital magnifies the material world. Moreover, in Japan, mobile media and datafication has provided alternative and creative ways for us to understand how to be in the world. So Japan was one of the first places to take up um, GPS. And this landscape architect, Ishikawa, adopted it in 2000 and has been using it every day to track his own movements. He's been doing it conscientiously. He's kind of like, we had this thing called the quantified self, which was defined about five years ago. He was kind of the quantified self of before there was quantified self. 
So what he does is he uses, he, he tracks everywhere he goes and then he uses that data to reflect on where he goes and why he goes there. And so it becomes a space of reflection. It also becomes a space of creativity and I think we've all seen those Strava maps where people try and do a bike ride that looks like a dog on the, the maps. Um, and so he thinks about how data visualizations can make us think differently about the experiences of place. Then he became interested in the fact that a lot of quantified self stuff is really focused on humans. And maybe we don't need to be looking at humans. Maybe actually we need to be learning from our more than human counterparts. And so he put a GPS device on his cat's collar. He expected the device would show nothing. It would just be a flat line because he just thought that his cat slept all day while he was out. However, the data proved his assumptions wrong. He found that his cat was active all day, not only in patrolling the town, but it seemed to actually have secret homes and families. So Ishikawa's mapping project reminds us of the ways in which media can create new and personal and more than human cartographies, illustrating the very contested nature of maps in their understanding of place. Places, as Dorian Lacey reminds us, are the stories so far. They're constantly being changed through the stories we make. Ishikawa's work also demonstrates that mobile media play a key role in how we inscribe notions of intimacy to place, and that maps also reflect processes of marginalization, the racial, the gendered, and the class inequalities. The performative and effective dimension of cartography is definitely heightened by mobile media during disasters. So in the Fukushima disaster known as 311, mobile media was on hand as both a witness and a companion to the event. Images like this filled our social media feeds flooding us with intimate and raw pictures of disaster. Mobile media galvanized the global public. Firstly, feelings of shock, then action and activism. It blurred lines between the mourners and the witnessing. It f we felt the impact of the event palpably on our bodies. As Papalistus notes, witnessing is always effective. It insists on an intensive in relationality of the witnessed and the witness. The real significance of effective witnessing is that it makes space for change, for bodies and for subjectivities that might otherwise be obscured, for voices and stories that might be silenced or simply unheard. What became apparent during and after the disaster was a crucial role of mobile media in the post-311 performative cartography of Tokyo. For many, like the recent what happened with the fires, the networks went down and power went down, leaving people carrying their mobile phones that didn't actually work. Many people walked for miles and miles holding these phones that weren't working. When we interviewed participants, um, they talked about how their phone was acting, how it was functioning symbolically. So even though it wasn't working, they actually cradled it, cradled the disconnected phone as if their loved ones were inside. During this time, the general public found out that the national broadcaster, the equivalent of ABC, called NHK, had deliberately withheld information about the nuclear reactor disaster on the request of the government which is quite interesting to think because, you know, in Australia, imagine, imagine if um, ScoMo went to ABC and said, can you withhold that information? Like, wow, you know, very different cultural context. And it also is a very sharp contrast. Um, I mean, the way that ABC, The Age and The Guardian took real news, news leadership during the Australian fires should be commended. But in Japan, when the Japanese found out, they backlashed against traditional media, turning by the millions towards social media like Twitter and Line and Instagram. These media would become key to how activism and expressions of eco-grief in post-311 would emerge. In the project Spatial Dialogues, 
we explored the role of digital media and artists in complicating climate change debate through playful interventions such as wayfaring, performance, working as research, and games for change. We collaborated with uh, colleagues from Japan, the Boat People Association, which is a group of activists, urban planners, architects who take people on walks in the underground of Tokyo, like the kind of un, the unseen Tokyo, and Keio University. To this day, we still collaborate with Keio University. For spatial dialogues, we placed a shipping container in a public park in a very busy area of Shibuya. During this time, we conducted many forms of kind of artistic intervention to engage the public to reflect upon the hidden water streams underneath the park and under much of the city. It was about connecting them with the hidden and lost cartographies of the city. From the ethnographies of mobile media during crisis, we saw how media was used for microactivism and claiming a sense of place. We wanted to further explore this dimension, and so we deployed a treasure hunt logic to the game Keitai Mizu, which means mobile water. Keitai Mizu uh, consisted of artworks by Japanese and Australian artists hidden around a park. All the artworks were made as various forms of abstract and realistic water creatures. Players had 10 minutes to find, photograph, and share the social media art about water in the park. The artworks by various Japanese and Australian artists toyed with the boundaries of art and non-art. Often players uh, confused rubbish for art and vice versa. And this is quite fun, you know. Um, and it also blurred the, the role of where the game space started and where it ended. Most importantly, it actually made people start to talk about their experience of what was happening in the climate beyond those kind of discussions of utopian versus, versus dystopian political narratives. Three Eleven also demonstrated how social media is a witness and companion in life, death, and afterlife. It showed us the complexity of place in multiple contesting cartographies that have layers of grief and eco-grief, and these are magnified through media. The power of objects and technologies to be conduits for deceased ancestors has a long history in Japanese, Buddhist, and Shinto traditions. Everyday objects can be haunted and play a role in connecting us with our deceased loved ones. In the wake of 311, this wind phone was installed near the Fukushima disaster site for the bereaved to come and visit and talk to the dead. It operates as a transitional device in which mourners can create continuity bonds. And here is an example of a Shinto priest blessing the ancestors to leave the spirit of the robot dog, Albo. Through these stories, I want to illustrate that grief and eco-grief does need to be put in context, culturally, linguistically, socially, and historically. By focusing on 3.11, I've wanted, to, um, I've wanted us to reflect on what learnings are transferable and which ones are not. And the role of mobile media and the role that mobile media plays in our experiences and perceptions. And so while the digital is often viewed as media that frames our understanding of eco-grief, I want us to reflect on the fact that data has a very real carbon footprint that we are still fully um, yet to acknowledge in our ethical ways of caring for the world. So in collaboration with Katie Kumsky, we explored ethnographically different cultural contexts and generational uses of mobile phones to understand the ways in which they haunt, especially through that as a device for the witnessed, witnessing and companionship. Here it also becomes a repository for memories in which data of the dead constantly entangles within moments of the living. So what can we learn from these ethnographic examples? And how can they show us a way forward through these kind of textures of grief towards a careful and hopeful future? 
this is one of the challenges that we set ourselves in the book Creative Practice Ethnography, which is by myself and, and three other colleagues. And they all work in various different areas in the arts. Um, and we're all really interested in what kind of sharings, what techniques and modes of translation and knowledge exchange could be used and, and cross-fertilised. We really kind of thought that the coalescing of this kind of, of art and ethnography could really help us to plan um, for socially and ecologically nuances, nuanced models of collaboration and engagement, particularly beyond those kind of extraction models that you see so often when people talk about consultation. And how innovative and sustainable techniques used by artists can actually help society to rethink processes and procedures. Indeed, there's a long history of ethnography and creative practice in the 20th century where a whole lot of movements like Situations International have looked at ways they can intervene in everyday relations and spaces. By putting practice and lived experience at the, at the centre, it suggests a way in which we can embed impactful methods in careful and reflexive ways. For me, as an ethnography and artist, I'm increasingly interested in how we can take these learnings from practice and translate them into a kind of co-designing for social change. How can creative practice ethnography challenge people to take ecological and social issues seriously? One of the things that art allows people to do is it allows them to take risk and, and critically reflect on their ways of being in the world in kind of safe ways. There's a body of growing uh, researchers exploring creative practice ethnography to find alternative ways to curate and create social change. So, for example, how can we create more productive spaces for conversations that push our understandings of grief, death, and data? An example would be digital literacy legacy. How many people have heard the term Okay, we've got a few here. Okay, so for those that don't know the term, it's basically the definition is the digital information that is available about someone following their death. How many people here use Facebook? Can I just get a sense? Okay, over half. So how many people on Facebook have ticked the box so that if, when you pass away, not if you pass away, we're not quite there yet, if when you pass away, somebody can edit your Facebook page? One person, two people, okay. So this is a really important part of when we think about grief processes. We used to think about the cleaning up of material things, but now increasingly we're having to think about how do we clean up the data and the digital world. Um, and digital legacy is about trying to educate and create public awareness around this. Um, for the, you know, for example, many wills don't actually have a digital legacy um, cause, which they should have, because what happens when you pass away and your loved ones want to steward your data but can't? Because you pass away, you don't tick that box, Facebook owns the data. And let me give you an example why that matters. So domestic abuse is once again on our front page. I'll give you an example from the UK, Holly Gazard, who was a young hairdresser living in London. She was also a victim of domestic abuse. When she finally broke up with her violent boyfriend, he killed her. Her Facebook was full of images of her boyfriend turned murderer. Imagine how her family felt every time they wanted to look on Facebook for, at a post that somebody had sent, they were reminded of the killer. Holly didn't have a digital legacy plan. Therefore, Facebook couldn't give her parents access to edit the site, which was full of images of the murderer. The story went public, and then a web sheriff, this is a new, you know, the young people in the um, kind of crowd can think about, um, this is a new kind of employment area, um, contacted the family and said, in 24 hours, check the site. The family did and all of the pictures of the murderer had disappeared. However, we can't expect web sheriffs to always save our day, or that of our family. 
And so this story made me really kind of interested in how we can challenge people to kind of and use creative methods to take seriously the life and death of data. In a work called Hashtag Dear Future Citizen, audiences were invited to sit on an island and contemplate grief and data. On the wall was one provocation, which was, in five years' time, there will be more Facebook dead users than living ones. And so how should we be living with data of the dead, and what should that feel and look like? So audiences sat on that fake island and contemplated the data of their life. It created a space for us to think, rethink the often unthinking ways we consume and produce data. To think about the afterlife of data. To think about the invisible carbon footprint we are making when we're sending and uploading all those social media images. And what the data lives of now might have on the data futures. And how data might haunt our loved ones in ways that we really still can't predict. So through the postcards, we got various different responses. And you can see some took it more seriously than others. Um, but the one I would probably like to um, just sit on for a moment, of course, you've got to have your hashtag. Um, put my shit in the public eye so people can learn from my mistakes. Bravo. Um, so the project was an example of creative practice ethnography because we sought to firstly understand people's everyday experience of digital legacy and then we intervened through creative practice to kind of further challenge their perceptions and create a space, a safe space for that critical thinking. So we need to look, listen and learn from our artists as they help us imagine a new sustainable future by addressing the monster in the room, that is, past, present, and future. Monster Theatre asks us to explore the challenges and opportunities of our times through the powerful lens of the monster. As curator Lee Robb notes, monsters ask us to interrogate our relationship with each other, the environment, and technology. They force us to question our empathy towards different difference across race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Monster theatres propose an arena of speculation, a circus of the unorthodox and the absurd, a shadow play between truth and fiction. The title is inspired by a group of provocative Australian artists. Their urgent works of art are warnings made manifest. These theatres are theirs. It is these artists that can provide us with hope and resilience in times of eco-grief and melancholy. For some, monsters provide solace. For others, they encapsulate our fears. Here, we see the power of the artist to compel us to see multiple and alternative ways of being in the world. For example, Indigenous artist Megan Cope's majestic collaborative sculptural and musical composition, which reinvents industrial dr drills and turns them into instruments that play the melancholic songs of the land. Megan shows us ways in which the environment could be listened to differently. The songs of grief of, la of the land recently devoured by bushfires, land in need of a voice. Histories that need to be listened to and learned from. Indeed, Monster Theatre is an exhibition um, shows us that we need to work through our eco-grief as not something that should just be compartmentalised or suppressed, but as a way to enact change to, in the ways we see and experience and live this world. This was a provocation slide by Rosie Baradotti a couple of um, weeks ago when she was responding to the climate, to the kind of bushfires. We are all experiencing different degrees of grief, despair, and anger in response to the climate change crisis. And in this, we need to take ethical responsibility and work to, together for environmental justice and frameworks. 
While images of disasters have become the norm, we need to look to our creatives for models of how to do things differently because the ways we've been living so far isn't working. Then we need to work together on actual solutions. And this is where you come in. <laughs> so in this talk, I've explored some of the ways in which eco-grief and effective witnessing can be understood as part of broader processes of making sense of the world. Rather than reduce its complexity, placing grief at the centre of our understanding helps us develop techniques of empathy, listening and creativity that can help to intervene and plan for more ho hopeful futures in the face of the new norm. I drew on the 311 disaster from nearly a decade ago to give us a current eco-grief context, culturally, linguistically and historically. I then turned to the idea of creative practice ethnography as a process that can help us help to provide methods and also sustainable models that might help us to move towards hopeful futures. So now, even more, we need innovative ways uh, models for understanding lived experience, the nuances of practice and the power of storytelling to transform the ways of seeing and inhabiting the world. We need to listen and acknowledge the multiple forms of grief that inhabit our lands. We need to listen to our elders and custodians of the land who, for over 120,000 years, have inhabited these lands. We need to listen to the creatives for alternative ways of living hopeful futures. And we need to listen and collaborate with each other for a better future. So to conclude with those postcards that we'll put on your seat, um, it asks you, how can we contribute? Um, how can we contribute when at a distance and turn disaster into hope again? And you can either draw or write your response. I'd like you to do it ideally um, in pairs that you're sitting together or threes, um, and then talk about it with your your partners. Um, I'd also like for you to share it on social media with the hashtag disaster into hope because this is a project that we're hoping to kind of let it evolve and get multiple people's um, perceptions and understandings of that. Um, and so that will be really kind of important to making sure that your voice is actually part of that kind of alternative social future. So thank you. Right. It's a bit hot. <laughs> So don't forget, this is your participatory point. <laughs>